Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at the writings of Thomas Jefferson as collected by the, the Library of America um, back in 1984. It was um, one of the first volumes they published, actually. It's, it's number 17, so um, published uh, in the first couple years, an early priority of their, of their publishing, publishing effort. It was actually their first effort to, to collect the writings of one of the, the founders. Uh, there was some political writing before, um, a little bit of, well, Francis Parkman, Henry Adams, a little bit of that. So those were rather political writings, but um, Tom, the first uh, full of full full collection um, by this particular series of an American, uh, f- one of the founders of, of the United States. Um, so in the last episode, we started looking at the, the, the section in this book called Public Papers, and we looked at the public papers that were that were produced between 1775 and, and 1790, focusing on the laws that Jefferson pursued as a legislature in the Virginia State Legislature. And a lot of them are quite interesting, and I think they're worth looking at. And I, as I said last time, it's something, if I have time, I'd like to go and look at some more of these laws, even the ones that didn't make it, right? We care, you know, for good reasons about the laws that do get passed, but there are a lot of laws that, that just that get rejected for whatever reason, and, and some of them have interesting things to to say there are alternatives or different paths we, we could have taken as, as a country or in that case as a state. Um, and, and they reflect the values of that Thomas Jefferson had and, and struggled with. And in this episode, we'll be looking at uh, the public papers that were that came up between uh, 1791 and and his death. So that will include the time his time as Secretary of State. There's actually nothing from his presidency here. We will look lay after this at some, like I think in the next episode, we'll look at his speeches. Uh, and there'll be a look at a bunch of his speeches over the course of, of one episode. And that that includes some things from his presidency, his inaugural addresses, his, his State of the Unions. They weren't called State of the Unions at the time. They're just addresses or messages to Congress. Um, but uh, so that period's here, but it's not really, we don't have any documents from that period. Uh, and then some of the stuff uh, with the development of the University of Virginia, which, which he, of course, had devoted a lot of his late, later energies in his life to establishing that. And there's some interesting documents here for us to look at. Um, so let's just start. Um, the first one was dated, is dated February 15, 1791. And this is his opinion on the constitutionality of, of a national bank. Uh, this is one of a couple documents. In fact, all the documents here that come from his period as a as Secretary of State are very, very politicized, and we really see the growing tensions between the the Hamiltonian faction and the Jeffersonian faction, which of course um, really is comes to a, a head during the Adams administration and the Kentucky Resolution authored by Thomas Jefferson, and eventually leading to the quote unquote Revolution of eighteen hundred, which brought in um, brought Jefferson to the White House I guess yeah he was the first to actually live in the White House so he was um, no I got that wrong I just had to look it up just to make sure I get bothered by that um, cl- I'm close Adams moved in November 1st 1800 so he would have lived there for for four or five months before before Jefferson um, came in in 1801 Anyways, the point I was trying to make is it's during uh, Jefferson's period of Secretary of State that we start to see deep factional divides, w- even within the Washington, Washington's government, right, between, uh, particularly between the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, 
and Jefferson. And I was just I just pulled off the shelf as I was reading this the the book of, of Hamilton's writing, which I also have, and you know I I don't want to have the series on the framers, on the founders, and political writing uh, to be too long. I, I'm kind of committed to doing Jefferson, Tocqueville, and then Lincoln, but you know I was really tempted to 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 take that Hamilton volume and, and throw it into my bag because I'm going to China back to China in a week starting to throw that in there as well I don't know I, I, I don't want to stick in one place too long though at the same time because uh, that has its its downsides um, but I'll think about it. it it's just a nice to contrast these two 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 writers but I can do it here I can just give you the the gist of it if you're not familiar with it um, but anyways the opinion on the Constitution of the National Bank is a pretty straightforward document where he re restates what the bill trying to establish the National Bank does. And then he basically says, I, you know, I don't think this is the, the Congress has this power. And, and that's really the argument. He doesn't go into a long discussion of the downsides of a bank and, and his larger political and ideological conflicts. He sticks to the constitutionality question. And of course, um, it's really Hamilton who talks about who, who introduces the idea of implied powers, right? Jefferson believed strongly that there are only the enumerated powers. Quote, uh, the incorporation of a bank and the powers assumed by this bill have not, in my opinion, been delegated to the United States by the Constitution. They are not among the powers specifically enumerated, for those are, and then he lists them. So he believes Congress only has the power to do the things that are specifically um, listed. And while Hamilton's view was it's so broadly written, the Constitution was purposely broadly written to to have all sorts of implied powers that people can embrace. For instance, we have, and actually Jefferson here deals with it, the Constitution states to they have the right to lay taxes for the purpose of providing for the general welfare, right? That leads to the implied power to provide for the general welfare. But Jefferson here sees these as enumerated and linked. So taxes can be passed to provide for the general welfare. The general welfare itself is not an open door for any kind of uh, program that the, the that the government that Congress may may see fit to to pursue. It's actually a fairly uh, generous document to the to the concept of a national bank, which he opposed for other reasons as well, not just because he, he thought it would you know move the United States closer to kind of a British British society with with an, ur an urban elite class and and you know a moneyed class and, and industrialization all those other things he, he wanted to avoid that was really the, the heart of a lot of the conflict between Hamilton and Jefferson's approach not just powers of Congress or, or should the federal government have these powers or should they be granted to the states or the people there's kind of a larger kind of vision of what America would be that that was in in conflict and that's going to come up again and again in these documents especially when we see Jefferson always kind of tilting trying to tilt the, the administration towards France rather than towards Britain at the time of the French Revolution. Um, but I, I, I say this is a generous document because he actually says good things about the bank. He says the bank may very well, you know, be convenient. It may very well have these uses, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is it is it constitutional. So that's all we really need to say about this, I think. Um, an important document to establish his his opposition to the idea of an of of implied rights. He he doesn't. He's trying to say that there's only the constitutional rights as 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 clearly listed. Before moving on, though, I just I just need to remind everyone and 
we need to remind ourselves that Jefferson had there was no enumerated power to buy land uh, for the United States to 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 buy land from another country. Uh, he had to, you know, justify that and and you know using essentially the concept of inherited power or uh, um, implied powers to justify the Louisiana Purchase. The next document, also a product of his time as Secretary of State, was is dated April 28th, 1793. And I find this document actually quite fascinating because it's, it's, the question here is something I never thought of before in terms of, of treaties. Um, I guess in international law, you have the concept of successor states, right? So I'm living in China now and a lot of the territorial issues that, that China's dealing with, um, whether in the South China Sea or with Taiwan or in the West, come from the concept of a successor state, right? So when the Qing dynasty fell and it was replaced by the Republic of China, and then that, of course, that government collapsed and was replaced by the People's Republic of China, each of those states then inherited uh, territories and claims from the previous state. It's not a blank slate, right? You know, there are successor states. Um, this kind of works well in a place like China where you had kind of a roughly clear geographical area of China and it went through cycles of, you know, a dynastic cycle where they, you know, seven, eight, 20 times, how many of it was, the government would collapse and replace by a new one in the roughly the same geographical area, right? There are the six major dynasties and then the two modern states in the aftermath of it, all roughly the same area, right? But, you know, in other areas, you know, where the there's not that consistency of, of territorial region the, the idea of a successor doesn't really work as well right like you can't say iraq uh, or turkey is a successor state to the ottoman empire right that doesn't that doesn't make any sense um but i think the china might be the best example of that um now jefferson doesn't quite get into the question but really what the heart of this is do, is the united states obliged to support its treaties that it made with the french with the french monarchy with france as a monarchy now that it's a republic, right? And of course, the, the people who wanted the United States to move closer to Britain wanted to weaken those treaties or weaken that relationship with France because Britain, was, of course, was at war with France pretty much from the beginning of the revolution to, to 1815. So this formative period of American history, when America was laying out its, its institutions, establishing its first party system, um, you know, really getting this, you know, establishing what it's going to be and what kind of country it's going to be. You know, during that whole period, the, the United States or the, Britain is at war with France, right? Complicating this this tension between the two visions of America. See, right? we see in like the Hamiltonian faction and the Jeffersonian faction, one pursuing more of a kind of a, of a industrial market-based uh, society with with high tariffs and and promoting industry and, and a national bank and a national debt and and the other the Jeffersonian kind of agrarian ideal and, and, and he thought there were certain policies that would help promote that so you know the revolution in France then became a means in Jefferson's mind it seems it became a means for this faction in the government to to kind of push for more pro-British policy and but Jefferson wants to argue here that no we have a deep commitment to France and the French people. So he does this very strange uh, justification, it seems to me, of saying that the treaty we made with France was with the French people, not with the monarchy. And so the people remain constant. So the, he does kind of embrace a idea sort of like a successor state in terms of these treaties. 
but you know i don't know like certainly france under the monarchy was not a republic those treaties i I don't know if the french people wanted to ally with the united states and join a war war against britain you know i don't know even how you'd measure that i doubt very much the average french peasant you know wanted that war or, or or cared about cared about it you know maybe but uh now the way Jefferson gets around that is he says definitely now that France is a republic, they have a deep friendship with us, a sister republic. Now, he gets into a lot of the hairier issues here because, of course, France is at war. So holding on to those treaties might pull the United States into wars against Great Britain and, and those wars. So he does kind of parse that and, and you know, sand down some of those edges, uh, the, the reality of these of these treaties. But by and large, he still wants. He says the United States has an obligation to to honor these treaties, even though the government in France has changed. Quote that the treaties are still binding, notwithstanding the change in government of France. That no part of them, but the clause of the guarantee, hold up danger even at a distance. And consequently, that a liberation from no other part could be proposed in any case. That if the clause may ever bring danger, it is neither extreme nor imminent nor even probable. That the authority for renouncing a treaty, when useless or disagreeable, is either misunderstood or in opposition to itself, to all their writers, and to every moral feeling that were it not so, these treaties are in fact neither useless nor disagreeable. End quote. So he does say there are grounds by which you might want to break treaties with, with nations, right? And those provisions are useless, like a treaty with a, a nation that doesn't exist anymore, or, um, you know, a treaty for a, maybe a trade treaty on a commodity that doesn't exist anymore. It's not being produced. That'd be a useless clause to, or disagreeable where it just becomes so odious or dangerous to the survival of the United States. He says, those aren't the case with our treaties with France. And so they, they must hold in, into place. So that's his opinion on the French trees. I found it very interesting just as an exercise in, in political theory, you know, or international relations, which is something I don't know that much about, but um, yeah. Of course, uh, in the backdrop of that is is this kind of are we more like Brit? Are we going to be more like Britain, or are we going to be more like you know, or is France the model, right? Jefferson was of course enamored with the French Revolution itself and the fact that Europe would become a a continent of republics, sister republics to the United States. Um, the next document is the report on privileges and restrictions on the commerce of the United States. Uh, came out not much after the opinion on the French treaties, same year, 1793. Uh, this this might be his last major document as Secretary of State. Yeah, he resigns at the end of the year, at the end of 1793, goes to Monticello, uh, finishes building Monticello, I guess. Um, and I guess done with the capital, right? I can't say done with Washington. Uh, Washington originally lived in New York and then the capital moved to Philly. 1790 where it stayed I think until until 1800 when the White House was completed and Washington DC was ready to go um, but anyways report on the privileges and restrictions on the commerce of the United States and foreign countries so this argument this was an argument basically for retaliatory tariffs against Great Britain for putting tariffs on on American goods so it's it's basically advocating a trade war with with great britain now overall jefferson's view seems is a free trade one he writes would even a single nation begin with the united states the system of free commerce it would be advisable to begin with it with that nation since it is one and one only that can be extended to all 
Where the circumstances of each party render it expedient to levy a revenue by way of impost on commerce, its freedom might be modified, end quote. What he's saying here essentially is um, only like totally broken down trade barriers uh, is something that can kind of be equitably distributed, right? Like you put a tariff on American tobacco, and Britain puts a tariff on in response on, no, I guess Britain puts a tariff on American tobacco it wants to import, and then America puts a tariff, I don't know, on books. We'll talk about that in a bit. You know, that's that seems to be retaliatory, but it's not it's not a one for one. It's hard to measure the actual value of, of, of those things because they're going to be worked out over time. He says, like, only total like freedom of trade can be shared equitably. Um, but he says we should do that with we should trade with countries that, that grant us that freedom and not not, you know, have not, you know, be kicked around by by uh, Great Britain, which is imposing these tariffs on our imported goods. He writes, but should any nation, contrary to our wishes, suppose it may find its advantage in continuing its system of prohibitions, duties, and regulations, it behooves us to protect our citizens, their commerce and navigation by counter-prohibitions, duties, and regulations also. Free commerce and navigation are not to be given in exchange for restrictions and vexations, nor are they likely to produce a relaxation of them. Anyway, that's the main argument he makes here is, is free trade would be nice and all, but that's not the world we live in. And we can't we can't allow tariffs to be put on our goods uh, un, without a response. But even at the end, he sneaks in his pro-French argument. Mostly he keeps France out of this. But in the last page of the document, he writes, France has by her own accord proposed negotiations for improving by a new treaty on fair and equal principles the commercial relations between the two countries. But her internal disturbances have hitherto prevented the prosecution of them to that effect, though we have repeated assurance of a continuation of the discussion. Um, proposals of friendly arrangements have been made on our part by the present government to that of Great Britain, as the message states, but, are, but being already on as good a footing in law and better in fact that than the most favored nations, they have not as yet discovered any disposition to have it meddled with. We have no reason to conclude that friendly arrangements would be declined by the other nations. So that's the argument. Don't be tied to Britain, which is not treating us fairly, but trade with uh, other, other nations. So next, uh, 1789, the Kentucky Resolutions. Um, all right, now this is one of the more significant documents that, that Jefferson wrote just in long-term history, given, given the history of 19th century America and, and where it went and, and the road to the Civil War. Um, we can't underestimate how crucial the Kentucky Resolutions, uh, the, you know, part of the Virginian Kentucky Resolutions, right? There was two of them. Um, one was written by Jefferson, that's the Kentucky Resolutions, and the Virginia Resolutions was by Madison. They were in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts um, produced by the Adams administration. The Alien and Sedition Acts uh, made it harder for immigrants to be naturalized, uh, increased penalties for criticism of the federal government, and giving the president power to imprison and, and deport non-citizens who were deemed kind of dangerous or, or you know, bad guys, right? So those were the acts that were passed. And, of course, Jefferson and Madison thought this over, was an overreach of power beyond what was enumerated and perhaps even beyond what was implied, right? Because um, there's a clear enumeration of laws, for instance, that, that Congress or, like, crimes that Congress does investigate and 
and, and penalized, like treason. So to add to that list was something that bothered um, Jefferson. But what these resolutions do, do is, is essentially say that states have a right. They, they essentially have, they're part of the checks and balances on federal power in the sense that they can rule, they can decide, determine laws to be unconstitutional. Um, Jefferson in the Kentucky Resolution actually goes a little bit farther to argue that that nullification is follows up follows that up. If a state deems a law unconstitutional, they can nullify it at least within their own borders. If, if you know, this is what he writes. There's all this. Uh, basically, he says the Alien and Sedition Acts. are altogether void and of no force and that the power to create, define, and punish such other crimes is reserved and of right appertains solely and exclusively to the representative respective states, each within its own territory, right? So these things may be crimes. And if they are crimes, it's the state's job to, to write laws against it and then to determine penalties and, and punishment. Now this Kentucky resolution seems to also make it, goes back to this argument that only enumerated rights of, of, of the federal government, you know, are powers that can be enacted. And he seems to, this is what he says, I'll, I'll just read it and then we can think about it. That the Constitution of the United States having delegated to Congress a power to punish treason, counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and offenses against the law of nation, and no other crime whatsoever. So that's the idea that only these four things can be federal law. I think that's the conclusion of this. That that, that means the FBI, if you know, if in Jefferson's vision would be an act, it would only be able to prosecute treason, counterfeiting, piracy, and offenses against the law of nations. So international, like I guess if you break a treaty or something, um, and that's all it could really investigate, um, which would really limit. Um, the, which would, I guess, limit the power of the federal government to investigate crimes, which I guess is what he wanted. Now, where this really becomes historically important is it, it opens up this conversation about nullification, about, about states' rights, if you will, about the right of, of states to, to trump the power of the federal government, which, of course, you know, is core to the sexual crisis leading up to the Civil War, you know, about Congress's r right to regulate slavery in the territories and all that and eventually fear that that the federal government would then interfere with slavery in the states where it exists eventually of course that happens uh, because of the civil war but prior to that it was a, a big, big fear of the secessionists um, but it didn't end there right this line this argument that states had state law could could challenge the constitutionality of of things coming out of the federal government would continue into the 20th century. Reading here from Wikipedia, in 1954, the Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled that segregated schools violate the Constitution. Many people in Southern states strongly opposed the Brown decision. James K. Kilpatrick, an editor of Richmond News Leader, wrote a series of editorials urging massive resistance to integration in schools. Kilpatrick, relying on the Virginia Resolution, revived the idea of interposition by a state as a constitutional base for resisting federal government action. So this this effort to kind of nullify 
federal law in this case of Supreme Court decision, which I think was followed up by certain legislation, uh, you know, took place. It's so it, it lives on. This idea is still around, you know, despite the Civil War didn't like close the door entirely on this this nullification idea. But certainly this is one of the more significant and, and documents in part because it it helped really crystallize the the, the Republican um, movement. Uh, the, not the, it's not the same as the Republican Party it was today. It was the you know the the people the Jefferson's Party right the one that would get elected into power in 1800 and and run the country for a number of years. But it would also open up this 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 question of nullification, which would plague uh, the United States for for much of the early part of the 20th century through the nullification crisis and then the sectional crisis and afterwards. Now that said, Jefferson does say some interesting things here about about nativism and treatment of immigrants and things like that. Um, of course, of course, that's what the Alien Sedition Acts were. Kind of the context of it was fear that. I think it was a lot of Irish radicals from, like that were leaving Britain came to the United States and they tended to support uh, the Jeffersonian faction and not the Federalist faction, which they saw as, I guess, too monarchist or whatever. And so there was a lot of support brimming for Jefferson's party from these immigrants, um, which is interesting because we talked about in a previous episode how, how Jefferson in Notes on the State of Virginia actually says Virginia doesn't need no, no, no immigrants. It's going to corrupt our culture over time right they'll, they'll bring in these weird ideas or foreign ideas and and we're better off without them he, he makes that argument pretty explicitly in in one of the sections of that of that but here he's more um benevolent to immigrants uh at least in terms of saying congress doesn't have the right to pass laws to basically criminalize um immigrants um pick them out uh, as people to be specially targeted by by law he says uh, he wrote that the friendless alien has indeed been selected as the safest subject of a first experiment but that the citizen will soon follow or rather has already followed for already has a sedition act marked him as its prey that these and successive acts of the same character unless arrested at the threshold necessarily drive these states into revolution and blood and will furnish new calamities against republican government and new pretexts for those who wish it to be believed that man cannot be governed but by a rod of iron that it would be a dangerous delusion were a confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights that confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism free government is founded on jealousy and not in confidence it is jealousy not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to drive down those whom we are obliged to trust with power end quote i guess that's not so pro-immigrant but it is saying that that the immigrant is being picked on first right because they're an easy target um, which I, which I think there's some, there's truth to that, right? The, the way states will use an outs like an outsider or a minority or something to try out some odious practice on before maybe applying it more broadly, um, to other groups, right? It's like the first they came for the Jews and they came for the communists and that, that, that little, that poem that we all learned, I forgot the, how it all went. Uh, but that's talking about the Nazis. Certainly no comparison uh, to the Adams administration and, and the Nazis. But uh, Jefferson here is at least suggesting that there's a you, you try out the policy on, on the group that you want to, on a group that's easily victimized. 
and then you spread it broadly to uh, to other to other groups. And there's lots of examples of dictatorships and authoritarian states doing that very thing. He might be hyperbolic here uh, about what the Alien and Sedition Act actually would have entailed, but uh, nonetheless, I think the political philosophy here is is apt. Uh, but largely, it's 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 an important document. I I don't know if it's it's just something you gotta. I think you gotta read like in history class. So uh, most of us have probably come across it before, at least in in passing. Um, so the next document we have. So this this anthology totally skips over the the presidential years, um, but you know we'll come back to that with some of his speeches, especially with his speeches and some of his letters. But we jump to August 1818, which is a report on the commissioners for the University of Virginia. So this is a big project late in his life. It would take most of the rest of his life before the University of Virginia would be founded. But this 1818 document is uh, a report mostly penned by Thomas Jefferson uh, that basically lays out the groundwork for the University of Virginia. It's quite a detailed document. It's it goes into even things like how big the buildings will be, how much land they have, how many, you know, how many buildings there'll be. Uh, the curriculum is laid out a little bit here. Um, even like listen to this detail he go that's in this report. I think Jefferson was a guy who likes planning things. I saw that with like some of these other laws he passed or, or tried to get passed as a legislature in Virginia, where he's he kind of likes his detail stuff. Actually, he's you know we might think of him as an abstract kind of political thinker with big ideas, but he really was interested in actually doing things and how things would be done. You know, of course, he planned Monticello and, and built that um, that house. And I, you know, he had a lot of say in how that was done. So I can I can imagine him writing down with like a ruler and some trying to measure out these rooms and these buildings. Here's what he writes here. Um, where is it? Um, there should consist of distinct houses or pavilions arranged in proper distances on each side of a lawn of a proper breadth of an indefinite extent in one direction, at least in which there should be lecturing rooms in each of which should be a lecturing room with from two to four apartments for the accommodation of a professor and his family that these pavilions should be united by a range of dormitories sufficient each for the accommodation of two students only. This provision being deemed advantageous to morals, to order, to the uninterrupted study, and that a subject of some kind under cover from the weather should give a communication along the whole range, end quote. He, it's like he justifies this, uh, the setup of the, of the campus and then the reasons like for morality, for study, and also, you know, for emergencies. It, it all makes sense. He put some thought into it is what I'm saying. And I just get a kick out of thinking of Jefferson actually, you know, planning the University of Virginia, not just the idea of a university publicly funded, you know, pub, you know, supported by the state, but actually, uh, you know, where the campus will be, how the campus will be laid out. Um, of interest to some readers will be this, uh, it's like a two page listing of the objects, the goals of, of the, the university of Virginia, um, which are quite broadly defined. It's not just for the students sake. He says to give each, every citizen, the information he needs for the transaction of his own business. To improve by reading his morals and faculties, meaning the whole, every, you know, whole people, every citizen. To, later, to instruct the mass of our citizens in these, their right interests and duties as men and citizens, being then the object of education in the primary school, whether private or public. So he did see knowledge as sort of trickling down from the University of Virginia throughout society. So he saw it as a public good for everyone, not just the students who would 
um, partake in it, which of course is I I agree with. Um, you know, it's not education for his own sake. He de he definitely sees a lot of practical benefits to 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 a well-educated population with institutions supported by the state. He also gives a curriculum. Uh, Ancient languages, modern languages, mathematics, pure, physiomathematics, physics and natural philosophy, botany, zoology, anatomy, medicine, government, political economy, under which he puts history, history is put under government here, then law, municipal law, and then ideology, under which we see general grammar, ethics, rhetoric, bells, letters, and the fine arts. So a nice, a nice solid curriculum, it seems to me, uh, even goes into the different courses that that would be offered in these in these areas so it, it's a fun little document that's I, I think the funnest thing for me about about this is just how detailed it is uh and the plan i mean of course a proposal f for something as big as a university needs to have some details but um and of course it's signed by many people so i can't say jefferson's responsible for every every word here but you know a lot of a lot of specificities in even like the moral development of the students and and like what kind of what classes they would take and all that uh in the layout of the campus i i love that because it, it's just i learned something about jefferson in this in this way I, I just thought of him in a new way as like a planner maybe you know maybe he was always kind of jotting down plans and and, and things in his in his mind or on his in his notes we'll see if he does this in his letters at all um, next, we have a little document called a memorial on the book duty, which was dated November 3rd, 1821. Jefferson dies in 1826, of course. So this this document, memorial on the book duty, is a letter to uh, Congress, Senate and the House of Representatives. And there's, you know, there's signatories to the petition. Uh, we don't got the list here. Um, but basically, this is saying that there should be a an abolition of an, of an import tariff on, on books. Um, and, and his argument here is really interesting. He says, you know, we need cheap books in America. We don't have publishers and a lot of the books can only come through importation. And so by not, by taxing that you're basically taxing, uh, what really should be an investment. And he, he talks about books as capital, which I thought was really nice as someone who would collect something as preposterous as the library of America. You know, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea of books as, as capital, right? There's a value just to having them around. Um, and it's kind of a, because books last so long, right? They, they can last hundreds of years, he says. You know, as long as houses, there are, you know, it's, it's an added value. It's not just the person who buys the book that has that value. That value stays in that family or in that society or in that library or, who, you know, whoever buys the book. Quote, that to obstruct the acquisition of books from abroad as an encouragement of the progress of literature at home is burying the foundation fountain to increase the flow of its waters. And here he's saying he's responding to the overall protectionist point of view, right? That if we want to support local industry, the way we do that is by high tariffs, right? Like we want car manufacturers in our country. Well, put a tariff on imported cars. This will make our domestic producers of cars more competitive, Right. And then eventually they'll be able to be competitive with the imported, and then you can drop maybe that tariff in the future. But the idea is you protect the, the local industry. That To that argument, he says, well, that doesn't really work with publishers because, because there's not really books. There's not enough knowledge in, a, in the United States to sustain 
a, a, to create a sustainable publishing industry on its own, right? So we need these cheap books to come in from from abroad, um, and that that's the main argument he makes. Um, but I I'm fascinated by this idea of books as as an investment, as capital, and that he, I've never seen this word used before in, in terms of books. Quote that books, and especially those of rare and valuable character thus burdened, are not articles of consumption, but of permanent preservation and value. That books, therefore, are capital, often the only capital of professional man at the onset of their life and of students de destined for professions and barely able to, for the most part, to meet the expenses of tuition and less to pay an extra tax on the books necessary for their instruction, that they are conse consequently less instructed than they would be and that our citizens at large do not derive from their employment all the benefits which higher qualifications would procure them, end quote. That you're basically preventing us from being as good lawyers, doctors, engineers, whatever we're training to be, as we would be if we had these books. So free trade in books is the name of the game here in this, this article. Next we have three... Uh, Selections of minutes from Board of Visitors meetings of the University of Virginia. These are dated from 1822 to 1825. Um, the first is about uh, religious instruction, and it's Jefferson makes a case here that instruction in religion, you know, is is permissible, um, not like from the pulpit type of training, but more like religious studies. I think he's talking about. Quote, the want of instruction in the various creeds of religious faith existing among our citizens presents, therefore, a chasm in the general institution of useful sciences. But it was thought that this want and the entrustment of each society of instruction to its own doctrine was, were evils of less danger than permission of the public authorities to dictate modes or principles of a religious instruction. What he's saying here is the prior thesis or argument was let's not, let's not uh, educate young people in education because that's the job of parents and priests and pastors to do right and i think that's more or less the agreement we have i mean now i mean i i know i guess there is some religious education in public schools but i don't think there's that much because there is this fear of of this kind of church state division right but jefferson here makes the point that it's not about that it's about actually preparing young people to think for themselves about religion and the only way you can do that is by giving them their education independent of of their parents and pastors who aren't going to give them kind of a fair neutral analysis of, of faith. So actually I think this is an argument he's making for religious liberty, but he's doing it by saying, by supporting religious instruction at the university of Virginia, not suppressing discussion of religion. The second is just some notes on, on the type of political theory education will have, like what books they should read. And, uh, the final is about discipline and rules for students. So I'm not going to say too much about it. The final document we're given here is December 1825. So that's just six months before his, his death. Um, a draft declaration and protest of the Commonwealth of Virginia on the principles of the Constitution of the United States of America and on the violations of them. Um, so this is more nullification stuff. Now, this document was never really fully released. He wrote it but he never went forward with it. And it was on behalf of the Assembly of Virginia. So it's basically a protest by the Assembly of Virginia about violations to, to their state's rights. Yeah, the document like this doesn't date very well, but it's still another window into kind of the, the thinking about nullification and, and that stuff and 
and by that point, you know, it's in the midst of the, or not, not long before the, the actual nullification crisis during the presidency of, of Andrew Jackson. Um, so uh, that's it. That does it for the, this particular little mini anthology of, of Jefferson's public, public papers. Uh, in the next episode, we'll look at his speeches, and there's quite a few of them, so it may take a while to talk about. We have essentially all of his annual messages to Congress. We got his two inaugural addresses. Uh, we got um, a couple local speeches he gave in Albemarle, Virginia. And then we have five of the Indian addresses, and those are really what I'm interested in reviewing. I have read the one to Hanson, Handsome Lake before. Uh, these others I haven't read, but I'm interested to see what he says because I know some of his point of view about Indians, but uh, there's a lot of of interesting things to say about those documents. So that's what I'll do next. It's um, It seems like a lot of speeches, but it's actually less than 100 pages of, of, of text. So uh, it's, a lot of these are quite short. So um, that's, that does it for this episode and this section of, of this anthology of Jefferson's writing. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. If you have your own opinions about these documents, if, it, if you have anything to say about Jefferson's contribution to the nullification crisis um, it, or the state's rights debate at the time, um, anything, what are your thoughts about his contribution with the University of Virginia um, or his opposition to kind of the Hamiltonian vision of, of America, his pro-French French positions as Secretary of State. Any of the things I talked about in this episode, please just throw me a comment or send me a, uh, an email. I'm not a Jefferson expert, so um, I'm, I'm glad to, to learn whatever you have to share on these things. So thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time with Jefferson's speeches. Oh,